This is KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives Podcast, and this episode is about COVID-19 tax impacts to regulated investment companies, or RICs. Investment managers are seeing a number of opportunities and also facing a number of challenges in the current environment, and they are looking for timely insights and perspectives both on what they should be doing now, and what they should be on the lookout for. KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives podcast series is designed to address these top-of-mind issues. My name is Deanna Flores. I'm the Global Tax Leader for KPMG's Public Investment Management Practice. On a personal note, I am beginning my fourth month of working from home, and I am very much looking forward to being back together in person with our friends and our colleagues and our clients. So keeping with the theme of our podcast series, today we are going to focus on several immediate tax challenges that are facing regulated investment companies or RICs. There are a number of issues in this space. They range from you know, impacts on the fund portfolios, managing your cash positions, meeting redemptions, and and quite frankly, asking for help from the regulators. Today, we are joined um, in our conversation by Deirdre Fortune and Brandon Andres. Deirdre, could you go first, and then Brandon, and please introduce yourself for our listeners. Sure. Thanks, Deanna. My name is Deirdre Fortune, and I am the Deputy Tax Leader of our Public Investment Management Practice. I've been with KPMG for over 20 years now, and I actually started my career at our Dublin office. So you may not even hear my accent anymore as we go through this, but welcome all of you. Great, and my name is Brandon Andres. I am a managing director out of our Philadelphia office. Uh, I've been having the uh, the fortune here of, of being able to share in, in the time at home with a couple of younger co-workers of mine being my uh, four-and-a-half-year-old son and my nine-month-old son. So I look forward to, uh, to being able to share some insights with you today. Deirdre and Brandon, th- thank you for that. Why, why don't we jump in? So I was thinking maybe a good place to start is a bread-and-butter issue for funds, and, and namely, what are we seeing with respect to the impact on the funds' investment portfolios in the current environment? So, Deanna, I think I think everybody is aware of the volatility that has in the market over the last number of months. But just to set the stage more for the mutual funds, like in the first quarter of 2020, um, we had major outflows. So, for the net outflows for the mutual funds were about 290 billion, and of those, about 48 percent or 139 billion related to bond funds, and then on the equity side, about 37% or $107 billion, um, occurred in that first quarter of 2020. And to add to that, in, in Q1, as an example, you know, during one three-week period alone, uh, global equity funds saw outflows of, of almost you know, $47 billion, you know, which was really unprecedented and, and the third highest on record for a three-week period, uh, you know, during any point in the history of, of the mutual fund industry. You know, like you said, Deirdre, I mean, the volatility in the market pricing is really requiring some fund managers 
to really do higher level of monitoring uh, related to their portfolio turnover, you know, the resulting impact to, you know, potential taxable gains or losses of the fund, you know, and this is really all, you know, a direct result of the funds and their need to meet shareholder redemption obligations as a whole. Yes, Ben, and I think that even takes it a step further in looking at the actual impacts on the funds. So in particular, if we look at the bond funds, um, going into the second quarter, uh, especially for BDCs, what we're hearing is that there's definitely more defaults, and from a gap perspective, we're seeing more non-accruals um, on the books. But from a tax perspective, I think the bar is a little higher for from a tax perspective to stop accruing. There needs to be an actual identifiable event, and so that's either a borrower's insolvency or bankruptcy, not just like non-payment. So that's what we're seeing from that side. The other prevalent item that we're seeing is the conversion of cash interest payments to payments in kind. So these two kind of scenarios lead to more of that, what we refer to as the phantom income, where a fund is required to pick up income without actually receiving cash for that income. So as the loans get we hope would recover, but if the scenario gets a little worse, we're going to see more restructuring of the loans. So that, when that occurs, we need to look at what the actual terms are changing when it comes to the loans. You know, portfolio managers are, are working with their underlying borrowers to see how they can restructure and how they can help them. But if the terms are changing, and there may be a significant change in the yield or a more material deferral of the scheduled payments. From a tax perspective, that can actually lead to a realizable event, which means that we would need to actually pick up again a loss um, from a tax perspective. So with that, we may have, if it is a gain, another additional phantom income where we have a realized event with no exchange of cash. Yeah, we've also had a lot of discussions with, with many of our clients and, and really continue to hear from them that on both the debt funds as well as the equity funds, you know, they continue to utilize more and more as some of the, the market fluctuation occurs here a lot of different types of derivatives. You know, I think that, you know, the term that was used by one portfolio manager that I spoke with was that, you know, everything's on the table at this point in terms of trying to manage the volatility within the market. And so, you know, what we continue to advise our clients on, on that topic alone is just that you know, there are a lot of items related to, you know, potential book tax differences, items that relate to mark-to-market provisions, and all of these would, you know, impact the downstream, which is, you know, the distribution requirements of the fund itself for its taxable year end. And so really what we try to continue to stress to our clients on that front is that, you know, there's, there is concurrent planning that can be done and there's prospective tax elections that can be made to really kind of align the various types of income that, you know, the derivatives are being utilized to hedge against. Thank you, Deirdre and Brandon. That's a really helpful perspective on the fund portfolios. But 
it's hard to think about the fund portfolios without going right next to cash, right? So RICs obviously have a lot of needs to keep cash on hand, both to make new investments and capitalize on opportunities and to meet shareholder redemptions and to make shareholder distributions. Uh, what, how are funds staying on top of their cash needs in the, in the current environment? All of those items that you referenced are really putting pressure on fund management to really focus and work with their treasury functions to really like forecast and model the impacts of, of these, as well as the phantom income and the character shift. They're looking at you know, both cash conservation as well as alternative distribution strategies. Yeah, so on the, on the cash conservation side, Deirdre, like you mentioned, I mean, a couple of options that the clients are thinking through and funds are really kind of trying to assess as to whether they, they make sense in their specific scenario are rights offerings and then share and debt repurchase programs. And so, you know, on the rights offering side, you know, there's the issue that, you know, while the, the fund's shares are, are currently trading at a discount, certainly it seems like it might uh, you know, be a, a good option for the fund to, to take advantage of, but, you know, there is the dilution of the shares that really needs to be taken into consideration from a value perspective. Uh, and then on, on the, you know, the share repurchase programs, you know, in terms of evaluating that, you know, the funds do have the opportunity to buy back their shares, which is a great option in some instances, but, you know, it really has to be thought through carefully because there are differences in the types of income here that the fund would actually incur as a result of that. And it could lead to, you know, referred to earlier, the, you know, the phantom income effect, uh, but also, you know, potentially lead to some character sh shifts, you know, from having things that would, would otherwise seem like to, to you know, a, uh, a fund portfolio manager as being capital gain or loss as really being kind of triggered as ordinary income under cancellation of debt. So, you know, I think that those are some of the considerations from both, uh, you know, both the income as well as you know, the character of that income itself. Yeah, and we're certainly seeing, you know, funds having to deal with that. Uh, on the alternative distribution side, I think some funds, especially more on the BDCs, if they do have gains, uh, even in this market, if it is happening, they're looking at retaining the gains rather than distributing them out and actually paying tax on them. What that means for the shareholder is, that they will pick up the gain um, on their tax return, and they'll also get a credit for the tax that the fund has paid. So the one area there for the, for the fund to look at and to be aware of is the state implications, so just to be um, cautious in that area. I think the one strategy which is getting the most attention is the elective stock dividend. And that's available to both publicly traded RICs and REITs. And what that allows uh, the RIC or the REIT to do is to distribute cash and stock and get a dividend paid deduction. So it basically reduces the pressure on meeting their distribution requirements without having to pay out the, the cash. There's always conditions to be met, one of them being to have at least 20% in, in cash. This 20% safe harbor was bought in in 2017, and just recently the IRS have reduced that safe harbor to 10%. So RICs 
and in particular more of the BDCs, are actually looking at this. But the group that's really availing of this is the REITs. So we're seeing a number of REITs uh, have already implemented this for their previous distributions with the safe however of the 20%. And what we're seeing is from a RIC perspective, where they have RICs that are REIT-focused, they are now receiving the phantom income effect of where the REIT has availed of the elective stock dividend, and they are not receiving the cash. He's receiving more of the stock instead. So one area to be aware of. One other thing to note is for RICs that have tax-managed strategies or BDCs that have set dividend rates, I think they're reevaluating whether they need to either change or alter that distribution plan. But I think one thing there they hesitate when it comes to that is whether what the impact from the market would be of changing or decreasing, in most cases, this distribution. So things to, to be aware of when it comes to this, both the cash conservation and then also uh, the alternative distributions. But I think from uh, others where, that you might be seeing in the market, Brandon, yeah, and you know, in in some unique circumstances, and really, I think more driven off of uh, funds that are ETFs, but also could be utilized by other RICs as well, is you know the utilization of in-kind redemptions, where you know the the assets don't need to actually be sold and, and to generate cash to be able to to make a redemption, but rather, you know, the distribution itself, you know, the redemption to the to the shareholder itself is the actual securities. And so what that would mean for the RIC is that there's no gain or loss that needs to be recognized, you know, no potential issues around, you know, meeting a distribution requirement as it relates to its taxable income as a result of it. Uh, you know, I think it just it highlights, you know, the, the need there especially uh, for, you know, a fund to really have a cohesive unit working together, uh, which would be, you know, the tax department working very closely with the portfolio managers to really kind of carefully assess and employ you know, the right lot selection uh, methodologies to make sure that they're really maximizing any benefits of, of utilizing these type of tools to be able to, uh, to conserve on their cash. That's, that's really helpful, Brandon. I, I guess one, one question that's going through my mind is where we have a mutual fund or regular investment company, including a business development company, they're meeting their redemption requests, right? So they're meeting them with cash or with alternative distribution strategies. Are there any unexpected tax consequences that we're seeing in, you know, in these situations where RICs are facing increased redemption activity? They're meeting their redemptions, but are there any things that uh, our listeners should be really aware of as they go through this, this period of meeting increased redemptions? Sure, Deanna. So certainly, you know, as it relates to, you know, the, the uptick in redemption activity, as you mentioned, and, you know, there are some unintended consequences or, or unanticipated in that way, uh, you know, due to the volume of the outflows themselves. I mean, certainly, as I mentioned earlier, you know, one opportunity to not have to sell assets is to be able to utilize an in-kind redemption. But, you know, we're talking about here in, in most instances, 
for our RIC clients, you know, they're actually having to go ahead and sell a lot of assets for the first time in a while to really raise cash to meet these redemptions. And so what that really means is some of these positions, going back to the topic of lot selection, you know, some of these positions that were held, you know, years ago, they might lead to very large gains that need to be recon- recognized by the RIC itself, which, you know, again, could not only, you know, it's not only a potential issue related to the liquidity currently, but also, you know, in meeting the distribution requirements as well for that fund. Yes, Brendan, absolutely. And I think, too, the other areas that are impacted um, is the other RIC qualification requirements that so we're talking about asset diversification and the gross income test. So from a looking at an asset diversification requirements, we have Rick has quarterly tests, the 50% test, and then a single issuer 25% test that it needs to meet on a quarterly basis. So when you have a situation where you have funds that are concentrated in certain areas, they because of the outflows and because of having to sell some of the securities, that concentration is causing pressure on the diversification. And these are really prevalent in RICs with the sector, industry, or geographical focused investment mandates. So it's important that coming up to the quarter end that fund management is actually monitoring this and making sure that there is maintaining, meeting those requirements. On the gross income side, I think where the RIC has a 90% gross income uh, test requirement that it meets annually, in order to do that, at least 90% has to be from passive type income interest dividends. But some funds, for example, BDCs, do have some what they refer to as bad income. And if there is a reduction in the overall interest or, or overall good income in a fund, that bad income piece may increase over the year and break that 10% threshold. So I think the most important thing here is that coming up to the quarter end for the diversification and also throughout the year, these items are being monitored to make sure that they're being met. So, Deirdre, that's a really good point about being careful to monitor uh, compliance with the asset diversification testing and also make sure that the funds are meeting their 90% gross income and distribution requirement. A lot of, a lot of careful uh, attention needs to be paid to the core compliance, right, that RICs are used to managing throughout the year, but in this environment, you know, monitoring those items is even more important. Well, why don't we round up the podcast by turning to a different topic, which is, um, as we all know, RICs, like other taxpayers, are subject to very specific uh, filing requirements, reporting requirements, very specific rules from the IRS. And in the current environment, it has been challenging right, to you know, paper file return, get wedding signatures, different requirements along those lines. Have we seen the tax authorities step in to help BRICS with these um, core compliance obligations? Sure, Deanna. So, you know, we were encouraged, you know, 
pretty rapidly as we were kind of approaching the April uh, 15th deadline time frame. You know, we did see the IRS issue some guidance delaying you know, filing requirements as well as tax payments for calendar year-end taxpayers. And that was actually quickly expanded in early April to address the fiscal year-end taxpayers, which obviously impacts a lot of our, our RIC clients and, and mutual fund industry as a whole. You know, we continue to await new new guidance as it's being released. I mean, certainly, you know, as of the date of this of this recording, the due date has been expanded from April 15th to July 15th, but, you know, that could be changing given, given how rapid of a pace that everything is, is moving at this point. Yeah, and I think there's continued uncertainty around that, Brandon, when it comes to as America reopens and at various geographical locations, it will be quicker or slower, and not only for the fund group themselves, but also for the tax advisors and the administrators who are supporting those, how those offices reopen again. I know there's always concerns about the RICs not having the ability to file the 1120 RIC or, you know, the need for a wet signature. So uh, I think those changes would be very welcome if they, if they came about. And I think an additional extension past July 15th may be necessary as well. Yeah, and on that note too, Deirdre, you know, you mentioned some of the third-party administrators, folks like ourselves, and you know, in the accounting industry as a whole. Now, there's also related to the office closures. You know, the IRS itself has certainly had its own challenges as well. As you mentioned before, you know, the IRS is not is not available to be able to do certain reviews of tax returns, and, and on the RIC side, you know, there's no electronic filing available. There's also a challenge, you know, as it relates to, you know, being able to acquire the treaty benefits as a RIC. You know, typically our clients will be able to file with the IRS and obtain in the Form 6166, which certifies that they're a U.S. tax resident, that they're able to then hand that over uh, to, you know, the counterparties that are necessary to be able to re to relieve them of some of some taxes at source. And the treaty benefits are really important to our clients, and so certainly and that's one other area where we've seen, you know, a bit of uncertainty. And, and, you know, as we kind of continue, it'll be interesting to see how quickly the IRS is able to adapt to that scenario. Yeah, and that's, that has been such a challenge, getting those certificates. Um, it would be important and it would be great if the IRS could recommend, you know, certain alternative approaches uh, with our treaty partners. Uh, such as accepting, you know, prior year forms in lieu of the current years, but ultimately, obviously, that decision rests with the foreign jurisdiction, and that's why it is so important at this point that we get some clarity when it comes to that, and to make sure we can receive the correct documentation in a timely manner. So, hopefully, that one will will come about soon. So, Deirdre and Brandon, it sounds like we should all be on the lookout for further IR potential, the potential for further IRS relief, both with respect to our, you know, just bread and butter domestic compliance filings for our funds and also potentially with respect to further relief from our various treaty partners where RICs are seeking reduced withholding rates on you know, non-US holders of securities in their portfolio. So definitely something that we all, all need to keep an eye on. So I would just like to thank both of you for sharing your 
perspectives on these really important top of mind issues for regulated investment companies. And I, I, in closing, could you each share sort of something that you'd like our listeners to take away from our conversation today? And, and Deirdre, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think the one thing from, you know, the tax perspective, you know, not always is the tax team brought in when decisions are being made, but I think it's important to really be aware of the tax implications of decisions that are made because you can get caught by the phantom income, the character shifts, and other traps that you may not be aware of. And, and Brandon, what, what would you... What closing thought would you like to leave with our listeners? Sure. Thanks again, Deanna and Deirdre. I think from my perspective, you know, a lot of things that we've been talking about internally here are really just around teaming and technology and how, you know, the ability to be able to harness our teams and, and really kind of take the, the knowledge base from each of our teams as we kind of work with our clients. Uh, as well as the technology that we're able to use and the technology that our clients are, are able to kind of utilize that, that we're able to share with them. And these are the things that will really drive successes for RIC tax departments here in the near future as we're all looking at it and, and time that we will likely, you know, continue to work in a remote environment. So I think that, you know, being adaptable, being resilient is really going to be paramount throughout. That's great, Brandon. Thank you for that. And, and thank you, Deirdre and Brandon, for your thoughts on the podcast today. I hope our listeners found this um, helpful and, and was consistent with issues that they're focusing on right now. And thank, thanks again for listening uh, to KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives podcast. Thank you for listening to KPMG's Investment Management Perspectives podcast. For more information, go to listen.kpmg.us slash imperspectives and be sure to subscribe to this podcast series to be notified of new episodes.